Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, podcast? It's Corey from Best Served. This podcast is a clubhouse recording titled Workplaces Worth Working, Unpacking the Labor Shortage. The hospitality industry's long history of bad pay, lack of benefits, toxic cultures, and no path to retirement have been exposed. It is time to build workplaces worth working that are equitable, profitable, sustainable, and invest in our most valuable assets, people. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to our room titled Workplaces Worth Working. We'll be unpacking the labor shortage. This room is hosted by James Spear Foundation and Best Served Podcast. Um, who's recording this room to be aired this Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And the link will be posted on Best Served Podcast um, IG, right? Or you can listen to it wherever you usually listen to your podcast. The format of this room will be like this. We're going to have our moderator speak first. And towards the end, we're going to open the hand raising for the audience to come up and share or ask questions. So audience, just be active listeners right now. And uh, if you have any questions, just write them down and have talking points ready to go um, so you can be more organized with your thoughts when you come to share. We just ask that every moderator to keep your share to two minutes max each time. And you'll have a chance to share again whenever you want to speak. Just unmute your mic so we would know that you have something to share. But just to keep, you know, each share to about under two minutes at a time. And yes, please ping in your friends into the room so they don't miss out on this very valuable room. I mean, labor shortage is a huge issue across the globe in hospitality industry, whether you are a restaurateur, a consumer, or anything in between, we're all affected by this pressing issue. So everyone should listen to this conversation. Just tap on the plus sign at the bottom to invite more people into the room. And this room will last about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, as you listen to anyone who resonates with you, follow and connect with each other, uh, reminding you again that the hand raising feature is closed for now while we're listening to the panelists, but we'll open it towards the end of the room um, because we want to be inclusive and we want to hear you uh, from the audience. But for now, just sit back and enjoy the conversation. I'm Chef Mimi Lan, and now I yield the mic to Chef Jensen. Thorough and detailed as always. Thank you so much, uh, Mimi, for that. Uh, appreciate everyone being here. And if you're listening to the recording, make sure to get over to Clubhouse. Uh, check out the four-part series we're doing in collaboration with James Beard Foundation. This is uh, week two of four. Last week we talked about uh, really impactful, uplifting culinary storytellers. So definitely check that out on uh, Best Served Podcast. And we'll be talking about sustainable packaging this upcoming week. And then we will wrap this series uh, into November with Indigenous Voices and Food Ways as we celebrate Native American Heritage Month. So definitely check out the full series. Uh, want to start off 
Like I always like to start off, I like to start off with a little bit of a quote, something to set the tone for what we're going to be talking about. And Angela Ahrens says, everyone talks about building a relationship with their customer. They need to build one with their employees first. Something that truly resonates with me, something I forgot about sometimes throughout my career as a chef, chef owner. So really coming back to center and understanding people say we're in the people business. I believe that we're in the relationship business, like Angela alludes to. And the most important relationship we'll ever be able to form is that of our teams, of our employees, so that the humans who are going to interact with those customers and create those memorable experiences, those great dishes, are at their very best because we support them. So that's what's, uh, that's the tone I want to set for today. A little bit of a run of show. We're going to get intros from speakers. Mimi's going to jump back on, introduce each of our speakers so you know who you'll be hearing from. I'm going to go real quick and break down some of the numbers. I think a lot of us know that there are some, some monumentally challenging numbers out there. And I uh, want to just break those down a little bit very quickly, rapid fire for us so we understand the challenge that we're up against and let the speaker spend more time talking about the programs, initiatives, resources, education, classes that they're putting out into the world, uh, creative ways that they are looking to navigate this issue. We're going to talk a lot about and navigate through the lens of what we call workplaces worth working, the employee investment model side of that for Best Served, which is kind of a balanced approach of investing in wages, benefits, culture, and education. And everybody here has insights into that. So that's kind of what you can expect. Lots of links. So please use this as an ongoing resource. When you check out the uh, podcast recording episode, Corey will make sure and drop excuse me, drop lots of links uh, for those resources so that you don't have to be scribbling those down as we go. And you can capture all that information uh, in a couple days in the recording. All right, that is what you can expect from today. Mimi, you want to jump back in and go ahead and introduce uh, each of our uh, speakers? Absolutely. My pleasure to introduce um, Chef Kiki Luya. She's a Detroit-based chef with over 20 years of experience, both in the food and beverage and nonprofit management. She was recognized as one of the 16 Black chefs changing food in America by the New York Times for her pursuit of social justice in the kitchen. We're very honored to have you here. Uh, I'm going to go in uh, PTR order. So next, we, go, we have... Um, Dr. Teofilo Rice, his PhD is in biopsychology and cooperation. He's a lover of good food and good work. Dr. Rice is a chief program officer at ROC United. So welcome to our room. Uh, next, we have Chef Abby. I'm just, you know, so in awe of Chef Abby, uh, whom I have met on Clubhouse and we've been connecting and speaking in Clubhouse rooms together. Chef Abby is a CIA alumna where she studied business management and minor in Asian studies, uh, Asian cuisines. Uh, gosh, we have that in common, Chef. And she's a, she's a chef working at Stein Erickson Lodge in Park City, Utah. Pleasure to have you here, Chef. Um, and we're waiting for Chef uh, Ponseca. But meanwhile, Corey, Corey is our tech extraordinaire. We couldn't do anything without Corey <laughs> with uh, Best Served. 
He is also responsible for the recording this room as well as every room that uh, that we do on Clubhouse. So uh, thank thank you for being here. And uh, I think that's it, Raisha. Yeah, let's go ahead. And we got uh, Christine Chung from James Beard here. And uh, Christine, please, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and then uh, uh, love for you to, to set the tone even further, set a high level of kind of the, the foundations, kind of thoughts, the thesis of what's happening as far as uh, the industry at large, the workforce, the labor shortage, and uh, kind of how we can uh, think about this topic at a high level. Absolutely. And thank you so much to both Jensen, Mimi, and the rest of the Best Serve crew, and also all of our lovely panelists for taking the time um, to uh, host and chat about what's happening right now in the industry. Um, so my name is Christine Chung. I am the digital marketing manager here at the foundation. Um, at the James Beard Foundation, um, a lot of us have had many conversations already with some of our various contacts that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis within the food and beverage industry um, about labor and also especially creating and man maintaining an equitable workplace. On the labor shortage end, what we've really heard is that it's quite complicated um, and there's not one reason or one thing that people can point to and be like, here is why um, we're dealing with issues like this. Um, so some folks that we've talked to are choosing not to go back to their restaurant business because they just can't for one reason or another, whether it's caregiving um, for a child or their family members, or because they're choosing not to because they're exploring other options outside of the industry. Um, and knowing that there are a ton of different experiences happening, the foundation wants to continue to support the growth and health of all people in the hospitality industry. Um, so that's why in 2020, we started our Open for Good campaign, which provides critical resources to um, independent restaurants to build the capacity to come back stronger, more equitable, more sustainable, and more resilient. Some of our resources include um, a free reopening guide for restaurants and diner, diners called Safety First. We produced it in partnership with Aspen Institute, World Central Kitchen, and Off Their Plate. Um, it's again, free to download on our website, jamesbeard.org. And if you're interested in knowing more about our other industry programs and any advocacy updates in real time. I'd also recommend send, signing up for our industry support newsletter where we'll share um, resources from our organization as well as our community partners, upcoming industry webinars and virtual events just like this one. Appreciate that, Christine. All right, I wanna take, uh, like I said, rapid fire. I think a lot of us have been mulling over these numbers. There's so many numbers out there. It's daunting, it's scary, it's complex to Christine's point. I just wanna highlight a few of them so we understand what the panelists here especially are, are up against and, and working towards. So, and, and this to me goes through a lens of like, I, I imagine and envision an industry where like 65 year old line cooks can get ready to retire because they've put 2.5 kids through college and have the 
proverbial American dream, whatever that is for them. Yet that's not the reality that we see because we haven't found a way to invest in the long-term success of the people in this industry. And one of the reasons is so many of us get in this industry so young, right? Almost 30% of our industry is 21 and younger. Nearly 60% is 30 and younger, right? And so it's, it's a young person's industry so often we don't create that path for a true professional. So that's a struggle that we face, right? We talk about sub-minimum wage being two thirteen an hour, minimum wage seven twenty-five an hour. The national living wage necessity is around thirty-one ninety. So we have a long way to go, a big gap there, right? We talk about turnover rates. They average over the last decade or so about seventy-two percent. Over the last few years, about seventy-eight. We're at over one hundred and thirty percent turnover rate. Average tenure is less than two months for somebody working in a restaurant. So these are very daunting and real and impactful numbers that are affecting millions and millions of people and hundreds and thousands of businesses. And this is serious work that we need to do. And this is why we're all here right now together to have the conversations, to find the resources, to find the like-minded individuals, to understand the opportunities and challenges that we're facing. Black Box Intelligence did, did a really great study recently and of people that have left the industry completely, 77% of them said that they would come back if, condition, excuse me, if conditions were right. And so it's up to us to figure out what those conditions are and how to be able to bring those to life. So those are some of the numbers we're up against. Uh, I wanted to uh, have Teo uh, start. Teo, maybe take uh, 90 seconds, two minutes, kind of give us your uh, overarching kind of position on the way that... Uh, Rock, the Restaurant uh, Opportunity Center, is approaching this. Uh, Andrew Parr, who's in the uh, audience here on our team, looked through a 144-page study on the state of restaurant workers. Uh, incredibly daunting task therein just to figure out what all the information that uh, Rock has compiled, and that's helping us kind of categorize some of this information. But Teo, <laughs> distill it down in, in 90 seconds before we uh, get into talking some chromatic things. Uh, sure. Thank, thanks so much, first of all, for inviting us to, to participate. This is a really huge topic and uh, hugely important. I mean, I think that the main issue, or I, mean, I think like you mentioned, this is a multi, multi-dimensional, multi-dimensional story, but the issue is that entering into the pandemic, the industry was one of the the restaurant industry was one of the industries with, with among the lowest wages and and highest rate of uh, labor violations, right? So you do like there's 20 states that still have a seven dollar twenty five um, cent minimum wage or a two third, and there's 16 states with a two thirteen an hour sub minimum wage for for tipped workers, uh, and that means that in the in in those states. Everyone, like the, 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 the person who is paying wages is the customer. It's not the employer. It's not, it's not the restaurant. It's actually the customer that is paying those, those, those uh, individuals' wages, and that creates a very difficult dynamic. And we saw that really play out during this pandemic where people were just faced with tremendous amounts of abuse, right? We just have story after story about the type of abuse that people faced from customers. A lot of what you're hearing about that's happening in the air in, in airplanes right now with with uh, with 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 travelers getting going unruly and and going off on flight attendants. People have been facing uh, every day 
and a slow motion throughout this past year. And I think that's a really key component. Just going in, the conditions were really bad and they just got so exacerbated. And I think that's the, that's the main issue that, that we have to face with. And we have an opportunity to change the industry and uh, it's up to us to take it. So I'll, I'll hand it back and unless there are any you know, additional specific questions. Yeah, we'll get into some specifics uh, as we go along. Kiki, same kind of high level, the work that you're doing there in Detroit, the work that you're doing with the Restaurant Workers Community Fund. Uh, set the tone. What's the high level? What's the focus there? Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, Kiki Luya, Executive Director of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, or RWCF. Um, one of the things that we do at RWCF is we really focus on uh, those quality of life issues, right? So. Uh, wage fairness is one of them. We also talk about racial justice, gender equity, and of course, mental health um, and substance use or misuse, as you will. Um, those are the things that we really feel are um, affecting the restaurant industry and restaurant workers in particular at a very broad scale. And, you know, truthfully, um, and I think, Teo, you, you hit the nail on the head, is the pandemic was just, it just exacerbated problems that already existed in the industry for they're seeing um, what we are calling kind of this labor shortage or people leaving the industry um, kind of en masse. And it is because um, the industry is not able to support them in the meaningful ways that we should. Um, that being said, you know, in Detroit, I also, you know, have owned restaurants. I'm a chef by trade as well. And, um, you know, it is it is really difficult to see, um, you know, your friends um, who are also, you know, restaurant owners in the industry closing their businesses um, kind of left and right in Detroit. Um, for those who might be following uh, what we're doing in the restaurant uh, scene over there is right before the pandemic, we were we had been considered a restaurant boom was going on in Detroit. It was becoming a very um, it was a food city, right? A, a great American food city. And um, there were restaurants that were opening kind of at rapid speed. Um, and so many of them have closed and it, it really is unfortunate. But yet it's a symptom of a very uh, bigger problem. Um, and I think that that's probably what we're going to get more into today. Yeah, thanks for that. Appreciate the insight there. Uh, Abby, I want to come over to you, uh, somebody who's just coming out of out of culinary school and kind of had the experience from from the worker side and seeing what it is. And you and I have talked about like this is really hard industry and maybe didn't know what to expect when you kind of in culinary school. Like what what's your vision of it? What's what's happening for you? Just kind of the high level. And we'll get into some specifics later. But uh, break it down for us a little bit. I think the biggest thing that I've seen since recently graduating is over 50% of the people that I've graduated with have left the industry. And the biggest reason was they couldn't do it. It became too much, the lack of appreciation. Um, and truthfully, like the biggest thing that I see is like restaurants think that like, the restaurant workers that's that's their life but in reality like there's a whole other life outside of the restaurant and that can come back to mental health and dealing with that and then also having to come into work and deal with you know getting yelled at every day and like having to separate the two and again also back to wages that is something that like that's been a struggle for a while <laughs> um and you know student loans getting out of school it's a matter of I believe restaurants, oops, sorry about that, wanting to change. 
um, and, you know, resisting change over the years. 90% of the people I work with are 20 years old, 25 years old, who are just leaving college, you know, trying to pay off debt, but they're not finding that sense of appreciation that they need at work to, you know, like improve themselves or, you know, get a higher position because they're, they're looked at as, oh, younger generation, you know, doesn't know as much, but I think it's a matter of we need to put more trust and appreciation into restaurant industry workers because at, like at the end of the day, we are the people, you know, that make, make the world go round. We feed everyone where, you know, we love to do it, but at the same time, it gets to us a lot when like that lack of appreciation and the lack of seeing what we actually do behind closed doors is, it's pretty rough. <laughs> But yeah, that's sort of like my viewpoint on it. Abby, thanks for that. I, I really appreciate it. you're always super honest and like vulnerable about the fact that you want to love everything about this industry. It's just really hard. You don't yeah. you don't make it easy. I always credit Chef uh, Alan Plemons out in Missouri, who like brought to my attention that we we call people in this industry bodies and hands, and we're not even whole enough to be more than just the pure physical labor of taking up space to be able to quote unquote, get the job done. So I think that's a, I think that's a big struggle and we're seeing that there's a little bit of a reckoning around that. And look, my position always is having built and, and audited and reviewed hundreds of, of budgets and P and L's, the only line item in a budget that you invest in that will never depreciate in value is a human. If you invest in humans, they will always appreciate. They'll always have a return on investment. Deloitte does some great studies on that in the investment in mental health or in, in education, in culture aspects. So I think it's something we need to pay attention to. We're in the relationship business. The most important relationship is that with our employees. So I uh, appreciate everybody kind of setting the tone for us there. Uh, so I want to popcorn style around a little bit and have people just be able to jump in. Again, just kind of take a peek at your screen uh, speakers. Uh, if somebody kind of unmutes before you, please go ahead and yield, and I'll keep an eye out and make sure we come back to you. But I do want to talk about wages, benefits, culture, and education, the lens that I, I believe we need to kind of look through. And I want to really spend as much time as possible giving practical and tactical and concrete advice, especially through those resources, because it's really hard to navigate this. People are like, I want to do more. I don't know where to start. So let's start with wages. Wages, people need to get out of poverty. Like 16% of people in this industry work in poverty as opposed to 6.5% of other industries. So we have some work to do. The first thing that I always say to, to any operator or, or even an individual is go check out MIT's Living Wage Calculator. And that will be linked up again in the show notes of this recording. Because to actually understand what it takes to be able to have a basic lifestyle in your market is very important. We can't keep romanticizing myself when I lived in a house with four dudes and ate top ramen every day. Like that was the life that was just, that was just survival. And it never actually served me that well. And we keep saying, well, I got paid $7 an hour. Why can't somebody else? The world we live in is the world we actually live in. So please go check that out. Uh, anybody else? Kiki, Teo, uh, Christine, anything on wages, any programs, anything that we need to be focused on, any way that we can navigate the need for better wages in the industry? Well, uh, 
I think the first, I know it's daunting for, for people to think about raising wages and, and it's important for people to put it into their business plan from the, from the beginning because then it becomes a lot easier uh, than trying to change midstream and try to change your business plan. But if you look at how the, there's a wide variety of policies around the country and the industry grow, I mean, let's set aside this past year, which was, which was a disaster. Uh, but if you looked at the trends over the past decade, the industry was growing everywhere. It didn't matter if you had a $15 minimum wage or a $7.25 minimum wage. In fact, it was growing slightly higher in the places with higher wages. And we did a study comparing like Pennsylvania counties in Pennsylvania and counties in New York when the minimum wage started to increase in New York. Uh, actually, it started to the number of the employment actually grew on the on the New York side of 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 that um, of that state line. Uh, but it's really important that it be factored in. And so one thing is we can have policies that make a guardrail that sort of requires this is how the business plan is going to be. But otherwise, it's really con it really depends on individual operators to be planning ahead of time and making it part of their business plan so they can factor in a living wage as they grow and they can grow with their staff. You know, I think that's really key, but, and it can be done. We had, like I said, there's the, these examples and, and the, the economy will rebound. It's going to take time. This is going to take longer than past recessions, I'm sure. Uh, but definitely we, we, we can see the fundamentals are the same. Um, the industry will grow. Uh, and it can grow with higher wages. And, le and I think you mentioned this, uh, Chef Jensen, you know, when you have, uh, when you invest in your staff, they're going to invest in you as well, right? If you treat people poorly, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to feel um, loyalty to, to that business, uh, right? The, the, the way you treat them is the way they'll treat you. Appreciate that. Kiki, yeah, please jump in. Yeah, um, I, you know, Teo, I completely agree with you um, in the sense that business owners and operators of restaurants need to put these numbers in their uh, pro formas and their P&Ls, right, before they actually open their doors. You need to forecast for that, and that's simply for sustainability, right? But along the same lines of sustainability, and I think that this is kind of where um, – you know, restaurants need to even be a little bit more practical because I think the, the, the issue is that even if you write it into your pro forma, right, which is then reflected in the menu prices, right, like the cost is going to be paid by someone. And I think one of the problems that we're having when we're talking about labor shortage is that we are not weighing out who needs to be paying these prices, right? Who is paying for labor? Ultimately, in the most perfect world, right, we can charge for the full true cost of food, the full true cost of labor, the full true cost of operating a just equitable restaurant. But the unfortunate part of that is that we have gotten so far along in this country where we believe that food should be fast and cheap, served with a smile, right? It's very profit over people, late stage capitalist model. And a lot of the buy-in also needs to be had by the customer side of things where I can set prices on my menu to reflect all of these things. I can write it into my P&L, right? Into my pro forma, all of that. But if people are not willing to pay that 
or, you know, people are saying on Yelp or on Google or whatever it is, they're way too expensive. Their food is great. The service was wonderful, but you know what? Like, I'm not going to pay $20 for that burger, but yet they want it to be all sourced locally, right? They want it to be delicious. People don't, I think, realize the amount of labor, the amount of bodies that it takes to do what we do in a restaurant, which essentially is that we are putting on a, a show, for lack of a better word, every single night, and we're doing it consistently for people. And yes, we should all be paid what it takes to to put this on, right? We are all skilled. We are all educated. But I think that the conversation needs to be opened up beyond just the four walls of a restaurant and into, you know, onto the customer as well. What are customers willing to pay? Because it's not just a one-sided conversation. Oh, Kiki, thank you for that so much. This is, uh, this feeds right into like such a important topic that we talk about a lot. We have this idea that we need to stop selling food and start telling stories. Like the food is just the proof that you are who you say you are. And the reason for this philosophy is because the United States, we, we spend less as a percentage of income than almost any other industrialized nation in the world. And what that means is we don't value food to your point. And there's a lot of things to go into with farm bill and subsidies and the way that we've built fast food culture. Absolutely. Yet we, as the American culture value stories than basically more than anybody else in the world. Look at your, your Hulu and your, and your Amazon prime and how much we spend on stories. And I always think of Rob Walker, please do this and we'll make sure and drop a link, but just, just Google Etsy, uh, storytelling experiment, something like that. Rob Walker from the New York Times Magazine uh, did a study, kind of a social study with some of uh, his fellow writers, and they bought a bunch of random, unimportant objects on Etsy, and then wrote these amazingly compelling and beautiful stories about them and resold them. And they made 6,400x their money. And it just shows that stories what matter. So we're spending so much time trying to sell the burger it's the story that people are going to like really buy. So I think there's a shift in culture, there's a shift in policy, and there's a shift in mentality from restaurants because I know I focused way too much on the food and didn't realize that it was the story that actually was compelling and the story that people were willing to pay for. And yes, the food better be fire, the service better be on point. Those are the cost of doing business. Those are the barrier to entry. It's a story that's gonna create that upside value. So appreciate that. Uh, Christine. What's, uh, what's happening there in New York? Some of the people that you're talking to on your, on your side, uh, specific to, to wages, what are you hearing? Yeah, I think, um, and honestly, this, uh, this, um, I personally am not having a lot of these deeper conversations. I think a lot of, um, our community and programs team can definitely better speak on this, but I think um, from what I've been hearing uh, from my colleagues is that um, a lot of us are really just sitting at the foundation listening um, to better understand the impact of wage um, on restaurant and, you know, other related operations from tips um, to menu prices and I know earlier this year, we actually hosted a series of discussions around wage, wage and compensation. Um, and uh, a lot of their, uh, 
the chefs and policy experts um, agreed that they wanted their employees to make as much money as possible, but, you know, of course, being financially successful for themselves. And um, some key takeaways that we got from some of these wage salons were um, that it is essential to reduce the pay disparity between front and back of the house. Um, and that it's easier to definitely um, pursue this change as a group, but it can be really difficult to be the only business enacting changes. And um, we've heard from some people that they may feel like they lose out um, to a perceived like competitive advantage. Um, restaurant workers or restaurant owners often tie higher wages um, with better employee retention. A lot of the things that we're hearing definitely is just like almost sounds like common sense. Um, but, you know, as we all know, working within the industry, it's it's definitely easier said than done. Um, and I think a lot of um, chefs and operators are really concerned that uh, a large number of restaurants will need to close if wages continue to increase. Um, so we've also seen a lot of alternative business models um, that people have started to use to pivot and help them restructure their own operations, um, which I think has been really, really interesting to see. I've seen some people um, pivot into fast casual businesses, online businesses, um, I recently actually talked to a chef that um, shifted her entire restaurant business to closing down her restaurant and instead focusing on like a completely virtual uh, model of teaching cooking classes and providing um, all of those ingredients and uh, meal kits involved with that. So I think as we've seen, especially these last, this last year and a half, um, we've seen a lot of people having to shift and pivot and rebuild their restaurants. Um, and I think that's been such a, an interesting point of change, at least from the foundation's perspective. Yeah, you're speaking to something to the, the holistic approach of shifting the industry standards that got us to this point, right? Over the last 20, 25 years, We've been a boom industry. We went from being the misfits, the outcasts, to all of a sudden we were like the cool kids didn't quite know how to handle that. And now we're like the establishment. And so a lot of these industry standards that we've built of what an expectation of direct labor is, you know, say, and what rent is, for example, you know, 10% occupancy percentage, like those numbers need to really shift because the people that need to get paid to make the business sustainable are not the ones that are making the money to be able to sustain that. And it's, it's not a lot of the restaurant owners either. So we need to look at that holistic approach top to bottom in that PL and understand your individual community, I think is what I'm hearing from a couple of you as well, which is why I love that MIT living wage calculator, because understand what's happening in your exact market at this moment, I think is incredibly valuable. Another just practical thing that I talk about from a operational standpoint as you're opening your new business, you're modeling it in a different way, is if you're opening a new business, open two bank accounts. When we get our startup capital into that bank account, it's always harder, takes longer, and costs more money. 
what happens at the end of finally getting your business open, there's no money left to pay the most valuable asset you have, your people. And so we nickel and dime somebody who's living on a couch to be able to pay them $12 an hour instead of the $24 that it would actually take to be able to afford a one-bedroom apartment, a walk-up studio in your community. Open a second bank account. Understand your employee investment model. Put money into that second bank account and never touch it. Because then you can be dynamic in the way that you are able to invest in your people when you get to the point of being able to start hiring people. And we too often don't do that. So that's a, a practical thing that hopefully brings some people value. Uh, Abby, for you, you're getting into this industry, right? And you're realizing like you're not getting paid what you need to get paid. It's, it's a struggle sometimes. Like how are you navigating that? What, what was your expectation? Where, where are you at with your wages? Um, so I just moved out to Utah, uh, completely kind of just starting over with absolutely nothing. And you know, I started out with a wage of around 17, but you know, in Park City, Utah, you have lofts for one bedroom, not even a bedroom that are about 2,400 a month. So you can see how low wages like that are an immense struggle. The somewhat forgetting yeah like yes at the end of the day the people that are bringing in the money are the ones that come and eat but people aren't going to want to come and eat when you know the servers and you know the guests or the workers aren't happy and you know aren't giving the service that people are coming for and you know it's a struggle going to work like 40 50 hours a week and knowing that you're just working paycheck to paycheck and it's it's for the people you know who came into the restaurant industry with like a huge passion like a lot of us are forgetting the reason we started and a lot of us are now just working because we have to you know to survive and you know to pay rent to pay phone bill and car bills and it's just it it gets tiring really really fast it does um i think the biggest thing i noticed the lodge that i'm working at now uh, they're actually really, really working on trying to, you know, turn around the lack of people wanting to work. They raised the weight for everyone, um, including servers, and they get their tips along with that. And I've, in the matter of two weeks, the difference of attitude that the employees have here is, it's crazy. Because, you know, when you're coming to work and you're earning $3 more, it, it, it makes you want to work and it makes you remember why you started, you know, cooking or serving or, you know, doing a guest experience in the first place. Um, and I, I think it's a matter of, you know, businesses need to realize that if, if they want the service to get to their guests and the way that they perceive, I think they have to start first in appreciating the employees the same way that they praise the guests. Because at the end of the day, the ones that, you know, give the service and make the food, are the ones that are getting paid, you know, minimally and working 60, 70 hours a week. Um, I'm working alongside a steward of ours who is working about 90 hours a week and he is still, you know, struggling to make pay, you know, to find a house. But it's the matter of our lodge not forgetting about him and making sure that, you know, he's important and that, you know, he can come work when he needs to, providing him housing. It's just, it's the fact of like not forgetting your employees when they walk out your door. Like, cause you know, when they walk out your door, they're still your employees. Like they work for you, they live for you. 
And it's just that appreciation that we have to get across that has been, you know, a really big struggle. But I think step by step, you know, whether it's a dollar raise or two or, you know, promises of retirement or future pay, I think that'll keep a lot of people around because, you know, I've struggled with thinking about my future because I'm like, oh gosh, like, am I just going to be in the kitchen for the rest of my life? Because no, no one really talks to us about retirement plans. And, you know, I'm working along a chef who was supposed to retire four years ago, but they didn't have anyone to replace him. And I think that was, you know, just shocking because it's just restaurants need to want to change and they need to want to grow with the generations and they need to, you know, trust the 20 year olds who are putting in 70 hours a week, you know, they need to trust them and understand that, you know, they love it. If they're doing it, they like, they need to be appreciated for it. And I think simply like as that, that'll send them a far ways. And I, I think honestly, it all starts with talking and coming to realization of like what it actually is. But I just, I don't want to see so many people lose passion. That's, that's the biggest struggle with it. Thank you, Abby, for, for reminding us, you know, I, I hear a lot being, you know, now of, of the, the generation, the elder millennial who like over the last 20 years in this industry has, has perpetuated a lot of these false beliefs that we have and, and built the businesses that are no longer sustainable clearly. And so, you know, kids these days in big air quotes are not the problem. I think they're the only opportunity we have to be able to succeed. And it's, it's about time we start listening and start trying to develop things that are equitable, profitable, sustainable for them. And what you're talking about with the pay it does two things. One, there's this, this lack of self-worth. Like our mission at Best Served is to amplify the worth and work of those who feed their community. And the work part is challenging. The worth part is so much more difficult because we've been told we're bodies, we're hands. You're just a cook. Like you're only as good as your next plate up. Smile is part of your uniform. Leave your shit at the door. And, and we perpetuate that. And so... I appreciate you pointing that out. And it also gets you out of fight or flight, out of survival mode, that you can pay your bills so you can see beyond your own potential demise to put some of yourself into the passion that you actually have versus it feeding the inequity of the life that you're living. So, Abby, appreciate that as always. Uh, Mimi, why don't you go ahead and reset the room? We're about uh, 35, 40 minutes into this room. Uh, we're going to keep this going. Great conversation. I want to talk about benefits a little bit. And uh, you want to go ahead and reset us real quick? Yes, it'll be a quick one. First of all, I just want to thank Lacey, who was in the room earlier, for hosting this room under her club, Hospitality and More. So please click on that greenhouse above if you haven't become a member already. Um, and uh, click on the plus sign below to invite more people to join in the conversation. I'm here to learn, and it's been a fascinating um, conversation. I want to talk a little bit about technology as a possible um, solution. Uh, I remember when I ran my boutique marketing firm in Houston, and among my clients were trendy restaurants. And one of my clients were about to launch this technology tabletop. And this was like 15 years ago. Uh, it was clunky looking, but it's got a button. If you want um, service, you push on it. Uh, I can't remember if you could order from it or not, but, you know, the technology was av available way back then. And um, but now I think the notion is more appealing because of the labor shortage. And I think there's one place where it's, it's probably never going to happen. Um, 
with using a device is in fine dining restaurants, you know, because um, expensive restaurants see the connection between servers and diner as a personal one, and they can afford, you know, to hire the best uh, service department and uh, introducing a mobile device is just not a relationship builder kind of thing for them. Uh, you know, when you go to an upscale restaurant, you're used to spending a lot of money, you want to be taken care of and all of that. But I think smaller mainstream restaurants, mom and pop ones, uh, may not be able to afford, you know, all of these uh, benefits or uh, wage increases for their staff. And so they turn into technology as a solution. Uh, I was in New York two weeks ago and I ate out every night. I don't do that here, but when I'm on vacation, I, uh, I ate out and, um, and almost every restaurant I went to, there's some kind of technology involved, whether you order from this, this, uh, uh, what do you call it? This, oh, I'm drawing a blank. You, uh, from like your tablet? phone. Phone? Yeah. Well, from your phone, there's a, uh, what do you call that image on your phone? QR uh, code. QR yes, code. thank you. <laughs> Barcode, yes. Uh, and then, you know, at airports, there's like tablets, table ordering, kiosk service. Uh, Chip is in the room and he can talk to us more about it because that's what he does. But I think that, um, you know, that could be a solution uh, where a restaurant might have fewer uh, serving staff um, that could tend a bunch of tables and they could come and explain what this, you know, device, how it works and you can order from it. You can push a button if you need service. Um, they can give you recommendations, but then they won't come back and out to check on you. So then they could tend to different tables. So it's a combination of human contact and technology is what I think might work better for a lot of smaller restaurants. Um, that's just my opinion. Thank you. Yeah, I think that feeds into what uh, Christine was saying that uh, we need a multitude of different business models. The restaurant business model in its current form hasn't changed in over 50, 60 years and very marginally uh, even uh, the 100 years before that. And so I think the redefining what a restaurant quote unquote is, I think is absolutely going to be a part of the equation. It's, it's just pushing back against those industry standards that we all came up with and, and built and, and perpetuated is there's, there's more opportunity. You got to decide what fit, fits the needs of your market. It just cannot be at the expense of, again, your most valuable asset, your people. All right. I want to talk about benefits. I want to talk about some of the ways that we're supporting through benefits. Uh, we can definitely touch on this. So here's, here's the punchline for all restaurants. You have to have health insurance. You have to have potentially vision, dental. You need to have those things so that somebody can be secure in their financial, their physical, their, their mental health. So that is just, that has to be a part of kind of the cost of doing business. The way that you position that for yourself, how you invest in that, how much of that you pay for. Definitely look in, into tax breaks and incentives. Uh, some places people are trying to pay 50% of insurance. Turns out that if you paid 100%, it would be tax uh, deductible and it would actually cost you less. So understanding 
and finding somebody who can help you navigate that side. I'm also very interested in some creative ways that you can apply benefits, right? There's some unique ways that you can do that that sometimes speak volumes to just your ingenuity and in thinking about your staff. There's an article, we'll post this, that, uh, that came out on uh, Restaurant News that I thought was interesting. Uh, Andrew Parr and our team found this. Talked about uh, Explore Restaurant Group in Arkansas was actually giving their younger uh, employees an hour on the clock to do homework. And I just thought that was fascinating to be able to invest in them. And they give them a $100 bonus if they got an A and a $20 bonus if they got a B. That's the kind of thing that leads to both benefits, wages, culture, and education in one shot. So I thought that was like the creativity that we need to find in this. Uh, you know, there's places like Sexy Pizza that are, are uh, helping people buy their first home that are employees. There's a Jersey Mike's franchisee in Wisconsin who is helping to buy cars for his employees who are struggling with, with transportation, right? So these are some of the creative things. So I want to open it up to anybody, uh, again, programs, resources, anything that we can be deploying right now that helps with uh, benefits. Uh, Kiki, yeah, please. Yeah, um, I have a couple things on that, actually, and I'll try to be pretty quick. One is a resource that um, I've recently been introduced to. I believe it's only New York and New Orleans-based, but hopefully growing countrywide, and that's called Oyster Sunday. Um, and Oyster Sunday is a really amazing organization um, that helps restaurants get connected with um, like preventative benefit operators um, in their particular areas. Um, and so, you know, I think that this is really important because when we're talking about restaurants, and I think we've kind of mentioned this or at the very least danced around it a little bit is we're talking about, you know, in our 10 million plus restaurant workers, that includes a lot of different types of restaurants. And so there's not always a one fits all equation. If you maybe are a corporate chef and work in a corporate restaurant, um, the benefit package there um, might be way more affordable, right, uh, for the restaurant operators. But if you are a mom and pop shop, it's very difficult to figure out how you can elect into a healthcare program that is both affordable for yourself and for the employees. Um, so Oyster Sunday, I think, is a really great step in that direction of just kind of doing that research for you and helping to connect you. Another thing that I'd like to kind of mention, this is something that um, I spearheaded in Detroit, which, you know, we kind of got off the ground, but not necessarily in a meaningful capacity, yet I think it does have some promise, is a shared service network. So for us in Detroit, um, as, you know, restaurant owners, we were talking about how do we, right, how do we pay more um, to our staff? How do we, um, as smaller operations, right, typically like chef owner, um, you know, uh, uh, operations? How do we have benefits? How do we, you know, make sure that our employees have health care and mental health services, etc. And one of those ways that we decided to do that was to come together as a few different restaurants and say, hey, we have buying power, right? If it's just me and my one restaurant, maybe I'm only employing 25 people, that then you include this restaurant and this restaurant, and all of a sudden, you can have hundreds to thousands of people. And I think when we think about how many restaurant workers actually exist in this entire country, that is a lot of buying power for insurance companies where we can start to have these conversations and push the needle, right? Push it forward. 
I also think obviously policy is a big part of this too, is that we, again, are asking restaurants to do a lot of this legwork. And I, I definitely think that a lot of it is warranted for sure. At the same time, if restaurants are electing to pay, you know, $15 minimum, um, you know, minimum wage, tipped wage at that, um, and also have benefits and they all are a smaller operation with only so much revenue, perhaps there should also be some tax breaks in there as well um, to kind of help them offset some costs. Um, and so those are just a couple of things I wanted to, to uplift. That's great. We already got the oystersunday.com uh, website is moving around in the back channels of, of what's going on. We are grabbing all of these links. So please, for all the speakers, anybody who might come up on stage, I know Mimi wants to open up hand raising here in a moment. Uh, links and resources. It's incredibly invaluable. I, who's keyed in, had never heard of that program. I'll be looking into it. We'll find ways to to apply it to what we do and the content that we create. So information sharing is huge so that we can create some networks of information uh, that sometimes the big guys have access to and have the money to be able to, to utilize. We have a network of tens of millions of people that actually care about each other. So please do not underestimate your ability to deploy that empathy and find that one resource that's an unlock for somebody to change their whole trajectory. Truly believe that. Uh, Mimi, yeah, you want to give us some direction? Let's get some uh, hand raising going and uh, get some people up here. And then Teo, I did want to hear from you maybe on some benefit things that you're seeing within, uh, within Rock, and then we'll invite somebody up on stage. Maybe yeah, I just opened the hand raising feature and um, Erin was in line first and uh, was trying to get her on stage, but for some reason it's not working. Oh, there she is. And then after that, um, Chip uh, is in the queue. Thank you. Erin, go ahead and uh, share what's on your mind. Hi, Aaron. Just unmute your mic and speak anytime. Aaron, I'm not sure if you're trying to unmute or what. Uh, maybe wanted to to pop back over to Teo if you had anything to add. Maybe Erin uh, could figure out, get the robots working on her behalf. Go ahead, Teo. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. I just want to say, uh, follow up on what Chef Kiki said. It's a pleasure to be with everybody here and talk about you know, try to think about positive solutions to these problems because we're always banging our heads against, uh, you know, the, the the large players out there that are actively trying to fight some of these things. Um, and one of the biggest things, like I'm, I'm surprised to hear um, talk about health insurance. I think that's absolutely necessary, and and a lot of people actually lost uh, employer provided health insurance over the past over uh, you know in in, in 2020. Um, but still, it seems like it's it, it, it's a daunting cost, and so I think we need to look at a single pair solution so that it can really apply across the board in the industry. But uh, I'm excited to look into the um, into the Oyster Sunday as an option that we could promote. Uh, but one thing that is really critical is really basic benefit, like just paid sick leave. I and mean, we can talk about vacation, other times of paid time off. But paid sick leave is something that people just do not have access to. They're afraid to call in sick. They're afraid that they'll be retaliated against. And we have, we surveyed a thousand people and 42% of them said that they um, were denied sick leave last year when they were exhibiting symptoms, right? And, uh, you know, it's just, 
we're talking about an industry that is that is providing food to to people, and it's it's really crucial that everybody be able to to to, re, to recover and have time to to you know care for themselves. So I just think that benefit is absolutely fundamental and needs to be provided to everybody. It's it has to be foundational to the business, and uh, you know I, a lot of people I'm talking to too. There's some bad actors in the insurance space. Restaurants are going for the cheapest possible solution. Understandably, it's again, it's a huge cost and not in anybody's business plan or budgets for the most part when we're talking about that mom and pa. And there's definitely some, uh, some bad practices happening on the insurance side. So really make sure that you get a, a strong referral with somebody that you're working with on the insurance side so they can get you into a good program and not just get you into obligatory insurance that really has no actual benefits. So... I appreciate that pointing that out. Aaron, you able to get the robot working? You want to unmute and jump in here? Is it working? We got you. Woohoo! Okay. Uh, yeah, so I actually had a question for Kiki because um, we've, uh, there are a few of us here in Colorado that have been talking about trying to, to build, um, look for insurance together to get that uh, that better plan. And I was wondering if you've actually seen anyone do that that's not incorporated together that's not already um you know working together so individual restaurants that are pooling their resources to get uh better numbers for insurance i have um in a in a few different ways so one and this is something that we did here in detroit is we worked with individual uh, medical practitioners to see if they could offer discounted preventative preventative health um, care to restaurant workers and kind of create a program that was designed specifically for our industry. And we had a lot of luck there. Um, And it was great for them because they got a lot of repeat business. Um, And so I think that that was probably the lower barrier for entry into something like this. Um, Where we started to kind of have conversation was with insurance agents to see, you know, kind of what was available. The thing is, is that, um, so we did um, actually incorporate, we formed a hospitality group and then, um, you know, kind of went that direction. Um, And so that's obviously one way to do it. Another way, obviously, is, you know, unionization um, and that kind of thing, which can get much more complicated. Um, But I guess, you know, if I were to kind of advise how to begin this, it would be starting with conversations with um, you know, your local um, medical practitioners and seeing what they'd be willing to offer, even if it was discounted, um, you know, healthcare kind of pay out of pocket, pay as you go um, up to a certain point. That to me was incredibly helpful. And I think it's something that, you know, when I do reopen restaurants um, is something that I will begin. Uh, at the very least, it is, it's a first step in the right direction as some of these bigger conversations kind of take form. Yeah, Aaron, is that helpful? Oh. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I can't. I can't. I keep hitting the wrong button for the unmute. Yeah, that was helpful. Um, I and I just want to be clear. You're saying an individual provider, so like one doctor, as opposed to like going to Aetna. That's how we started. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. And that was that was you can still have the conversations with Aetna. Right. Um, But it might take a little bit more um, kind of 
organizing um, on the back end for you. Whereas if you're kind of just a collective of businesses that aren't under one umbrella, hospitality company or union, et cetera, that would be the easiest way to go and to start to have negotiations there. Yeah, and Aaron, I'll connect you via email with uh, Kiki, Aaron's organization, uh, Culinary Hospitality Outreach and Wellness, uh, definitely somebody who could be some connective tissue for this kind of uh, meaningful work. So I think that's important. So Kiki, thank you so much for that information. Uh, Christina, I'm, I'm interested as, as Kiki was speaking, I'm like, uh, you know, the, the foundation already has, uh, has members. I was interested if those types of conversations internally or externally around the foundation has happened or, or any programs, resources, or even just pointing people in the right direction, anything happening there of, of worth to share from the foundation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first, I wanted to say that I got really excited when Kiki mentioned um, Oyster Sunday because the foundation has actually worked um, quite a bit with uh, Elizabeth Tilton, the CEO from Oyster Sunday, on a couple of great uh, industry webinars that you can find on our website. Um, you can use our search button and look up Oyster Sunday and they should pop right up and we have them recorded if anybody is interested in listening. Um, I believe she's also written a few blog posts in terms of on this exact topic of, um, you know, benef certain benefits, how, um, hiring and retaining employees, um, things like that, um, which I remember it being very, very um, insightful. But um, other resources um, that we have at the foundation. So as I mentioned earlier um, in the introduction, I um, really do recommend signing up for our industry support newsletter, which again, you can go on jamesbeard.org to do. Um, that is really where we uh, will send up to date advocacy updates because we also do work a lot with the Independent Restaurant uh, Coalition. Um, and a lot of other community updates from our community partners and organizations that we work with, um, as well as any programming updates that we have. So um, we, we are hosting um, a few more events with the Best Served podcast crew, um, which we're really excited to do, but we also have, um, you know, some other industry support webinars and virtual events um, that everyone can look forward to. We also have um, just as uh, just general information um, on reopening guides um, on our open for good campaign, um, as well as um, we have different programs such as the legacy network and our women's leadership network, um, our leadership programs. Um, unfortunately, this year, this year's applications have closed for both of them. But um, again, if you sign up for a newsletter, you'll be able to get more up-to-date information on applications as well as more information on those programs and scholarships. Um, but I think I've covered most of our resources, which are many, but I, I do recommend that people um, poke around our website, jamesbeard.org. Um, we have tons of blog posts and resources and programs that um, may be of interest. This is great. I love it. It was just a, a, a barrage of resources there, which I think is great. Uh, I like how much pressure we're putting on Corey 
Corey's going to have to re-listen to this episode just to make sure that we get all 34 links that I believe we're going to need to the resources, which is exactly what we wanted. We want this to be resource rich for people so that they can take those first steps because they're scary and they're difficult and they are absolutely necessary, mission critical, the only chance that we we have for success on this. So so we got Chip and Ricky added in here. Uh, Chip, anything to ask, add here? Excuse me. Uh, before we go to Chip, let me just do this protocol so we don't get in trouble. Um, reminding everyone that this room is being recorded uh, and it's going to be aired on Best Served Podcast. And uh, we're coming closer to the end of the room. We have about 12 minutes left. So if everybody can just keep your share to about 90 seconds, uh, that would be great. Thanks. Chef, Chip, I've the never... floor is all yours. Thank you. I've never spoken for 90 seconds or less in my life, but I'll sure try for you. Um, really great room, uh, really generous room, tons of uh, tons of value uh, being shared here. Uh, so Jensen, thank you for kind of setting the, the stage uh, the handful of times I've been in this room. I really appreciated that. Uh, I do have a couple of things that I wanted to share. Um, it really goes back to something Jensen said a few uh, few minutes ago, which is the, the key to so much of this is embracing, um, the key to so much of this is embracing new uh, new business models, right? Uh, that uh, that you had said, you know, restaurants have gone unchanged for fifty or sixty years. It's actually like two hundred and fifty. Uh, we, we've we've injected little digital components, right? We used to write handwritten dupes, and now we've got a POS system. Woohoo! We used to call and write your reservation in a big book. Now we got a reservation. Now we just do it digitally on open table or seven rooms or talk or whatever it is. But uh, it's largely the same. You, people tell us when they're going to come in. They come in. Uh, they eat, they pay for what they consume, and then they leave. Um, but there are so many uh, new opportunities out there uh, that technology is is offering us. And, and that really is the key to this labor shortage, uh, the, the labor crisis, let's say, uh, because uh, because we're still operating from a place of, um, of subsistence, of scarcity, rather than a place of plenty, right? If we can get to a place where we're operating from a place of plenty, where there's more than enough to go around, then there is enough for us to be able to offer all of these things. Um, the key to other, you know, te technology, um, you know, Mimi was talking about this a little earlier. We were in a room earlier. We were talking about kiosk service and table service, right? I, I talk to operators all day long, every day. They say, I can't find waiters. I can't find waiters. I say, why do you even still have waiters? We now have, uh, we have devices, uh, technology that replaces much of what a server does, at least in the way that we think of a server, right? And pretty soon AI and, uh, and robotics are coming to the back of the house, right? Flipping burgers, dropping fries, picking them up, salting them. There's a whole series of things that can be done that will be able to be done by robotics. That's going to, that's going to save a lot of this stuff if we let it. The other piece I wanted to say though, for the moment, uh, for the moment here, right? Is that you should be injecting all of these things. But when we think about benefits, it goes beyond health, dental, and vision. Um, it goes beyond um, just just the basics, right? We have to think of what do people want in a job? You know, what do they um, what, what do they want to continue growing, both personally and professionally? I'm gonna share just a quick story of, uh, of a, an operator that I'm working with down in South Carolina that has totally rethought um, hourly employment. Right, they've now been giving um, uh, uh, hourly uh, minimums, uh, hourly guarantees to all of their front of the house employees. So you make your base hourly plus tips. If it doesn't hit this number, we'll uh, we'll match it up to that uh, up to that point. So that we know that every employee is going to make whatever that number is, whatever their guarantee is. They started doing a track system, right? So one of the things that we uh, that we know 
stinks about the restaurant industry is nights and weekends, nights and weekends, holidays. And so what they did is a track system. And so you work five days one week and two days the next week. And basically you get a weekend off, you get every other weekend off. And so basically you can go and, and see your family, you can travel, you can uh, be at soccer games and dance recitals and all this every other week. It didn't take a lot to just build that track system for both front of the house and back of the house and uh, both in leadership and hourly. There are sous chefs, the executive chef still works a you know, typical uh, five day work week, sometimes six day work week, but sous chefs, um, uh, sous chefs, managers, uh, hourlies, they all work on this track system. Um, they started doing uh, just simple things like that that actually don't don't take that much, and, they're, and they've gone further. But I don't want to waste my time because I was told ninety seconds, and I doubled that, I'm sure. But um, but it, it's totally possible. Uh, the last thing I'll leave you with is Danny Meyer. Right, Danny Meyer famously used to run um, uh, English as a second language on Saturday mornings uh, at Gramercy Tavern here in New York City. I'm based out of here in New York. And what an opportunity we talk about. You know, giving people the opportunity to to move up so much. Um, you know, the immigrant population is just a language barrier. And so every Saturday he would do uh, two sessions, uh, basically English one and English two, and you moved up because how do you become a porter to a line cook? So much of it, uh, yes, is teaching knife skills and, and basics, but it's just about being able to understand the language. How do you move from, uh, from a busser to a runner, a runner to a server, server to a captain? So much of it, upward mobility comes when you, uh, when you teach the people and you give them the tools to continue teaching themselves. Um, and, and that costs very little to be able to provide your staff. Chip appreciates the insights as always. Uh, we're getting to the end here. I want to be uh, respectful of everybody's time. And so, Ricky, we had you up here. I do want to have you uh, ask or add something quickly. And then, uh, panelists, I want to come around to each of you. Best place to connect with you, number one spot. Uh, this will be linked up in the show notes of the recording. If you're listening to the recording, get over to Clubhouse so you can be a part of these conversations live. And, uh, and so we'll come around and so think about number one place we can connect with each of you. But please, Ricky, before we wrap up, what do you got for us? Thank you, guys. Uh, first, just great conversation. So many things that, that I've been thinking about for a while. And Abby, especially, I really enjoyed hearing from you. Um, just quickly, I, from my background, I'm not in the restaurant space and haven't ever really been directly in the restaurant space, but worked in parallel uh, with a number of young creative chefs in New York for a number of years. I work in the urban agriculture space and kind of local food system world. So um, we're working closely with many of those creative minds. So um, I think my question, my first question comes kind of from, from that vantage point. Um, I'm really just curious about any sort of programs that you've seen. I'm thinking of, you know, potentially exchange style programs or fellowships or something that's geared towards young restaurant workers who do want to be able to see a career pathway in the restaurant space, especially towards management or entrepreneurship. So that, that's one question, if anybody has heard of, of specific programs. And then the other question, I'm just curious, and, and Chip thinks also for, uh, I had a lot of notes from, from what you just talked about, um, especially the, the, the tools, I loved that. But I'm also just curious if you have any other examples of restaurants you've seen leading the way with, yeah, creative tools, creative programs. I'd love to just get a, basically a list of names um, and I'll, I'll stop there. Anybody, Kiki, Abby, Teo, Nicole, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, anything you see there? I would like to add about programs. So, Right now, I'm at Sky and Erickson Lodge, 
And a great thing that they do is they will bring over, so it's, we have H2B visas and J1 visas. So these are for people who you know are abroad and want to get into the hospitality industry. So what our company will do is for people who haven't usually, you know, done the J1 visas, they'll support them and like they upfront put money for them to come here. They provide them housing and I believe the time is a, roughly between a year to two years. And I, I just wanted to answer that because I think that is like a great program because, you know, it gives chances to people, you know, who normally wouldn't have the chance to get into, you know, the fine dining or the restaurants in the States because like we all know how how different the hospitality industry is, you know, outside of the States. And it's a program that Stein has been doing for, for years and almost over half of our employees are people on J-1 visas and H-2B visas, but it, it gives an opportunity for those people that they would never have had otherwise. And they are one of the most hard, hard hardest workers we have here, like 100% for like people who especially have like so little. Abby, you're, you're getting gold star next to your name for this room. I'm serious. Uh, thank you for bringing so much value and so much perspective. Uh, yeah. Anybody else want to kind of add to that before we, we start to wrap up the room here, Christine. Yeah. I just wanted to quickly hop onto this. Um, and, uh, first some of the, um, interesting, uh, restaurants that I've seen recently um, adopt like a kind of like a worker owned co-op or co cooperatives. Um, so like part of the restaurant is owned by certain workers or um, I've seen Joe Squared in Baltimore. It's like, is your traditional neighborhood restaurant, um, you know, slinging pizzas but actually like i believe about like 50 percent of the workers own the restaurant um which i thought was really interesting another co-op um restaurant is uh phoenix coffee i believe um that's actually based in cleveland um uh they are also i believe like i think they have it's like 13 out of the 32 employees are um, are members of the co-op. Um, and I think this shifts um, an expansion of this cooperative uh, restaurant model is, has been such an interesting and honestly very beneficial way that restaurants that we've recently seen um, shift um, based on a lot of the challenges that the industry has been facing. Um, additionally, to get to your first question, um, I hate to be that guy only talking about the James Beard Foundation, but um, we do actually have this program called the James Beard Fellows Program. Um, it was recently launched, I believe, last April um, or this past April, where we've been um, re-envisioning the James Beard House um, into a space where young and emerging chefs, or not young, just young, but any sort of emerging chefs um, who want to learn more about entrepreneurship, sustainability, and as well as policy um, and even PR can get to um, go into about like a six-week intensive program and um, 
work on their skills. And I think that's a program that I personally have been really, really excited about. Thank you for that. No, please keep talking about the programs you have. This was like literally could just been a, a room where we just like link drop the entire thing. So thank you for that because we need we need those. Uh, definitely go check out at Chef Jensen Cummings or Besser Podcast on Instagram. In anticipation of this, I posted something from I mentioned Sexy Pizza earlier because they were like looking to help buy first homes for employees. They also uh, have a, a full post on like all the things that kind of means to work for them. There's like nine different things, employee investment, uh, ownership model, their, their benefits, their wages, the, the house buying, like all of those things. It's, a, it's really good just to see what's possible. And, and uh, Kayvon Kalabari is just like a really visionary uh, restaurateur and they're, they're seeing rapid growth and you know, no lack of uh, employees because of it. So definitely go check that out and, and look into what they're doing. Cause I think it's a great model. All right. We're at the end here. Uh, Nicole, I always love to hear you speak. So I like want to give you like your, your 92nd thesis statement on labor shortage. Make sure we get that. And then real quick, I'm going to come to all the speakers and uh, please tell us the one place, Instagram, your blog, Reddit, LinkedIn, where we can connect with you. But Nicole, please take a moment. Tell us, tell us what we need to be thinking about that. Uh, that's top of mind for you when it comes to this, uh, this quote unquote labor shortage. Yeah, thank you. And I apologize for coming in so late. I'm calling from LA and, uh, I, I, I gotta learn how to do time difference. I never get, I never get it right. So I apologize. I came in at the tail end. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure you had such a rich conversation and I, I dare not, um, be redundant or repeat what you guys have already gone over. But the one thing I can say about my experience with labor and uh, especially during this time COVID, I'm linking the dots and what I know is COVID is the great accelerator. And whether or not it was the sustainability of restaurants or a living wage or different operating models, what is clear to me is that COVID only accelerated what were uh, in the shadows or what was being murmured amongst operators or activists alike. And uh, what I find, uh, you know, I have, I I just closed Jeepney in New York City, uh, concurrent with me opening in Miami. And and, uh, markets are city by city. And I can say without a doubt, New York City is such a hustler mentality and the, the city itself is driven to Ivy League and how it it hustles and it works. Um, that being said, Miami's a little bit different. It's a little bit more lax. People are, are more open to um, not show up for shifts or show up three hours late and then make up the hours in the tail end of the shift, even though they're not necessarily needed. So it's a little bit of a, a culture shift. But for me, um, the, the conundrum right now is where am I going to get staff? and adopting um, a higher uh, opening hourly. And that hourly matches what a lot have advocated as a, uh, a livable minimum wage, which is $15 an hour. And uh, I'm, I'm sure all of us who are operators or are minding the store and the, and the numbers is how are we going to um, recover from this swell in a demand of hourly wage. Did you guys talk about that at all? I'm not sure, but 
Um, one thing is some of the some of the ideas that seemed very um, radical even five years ago is adding service charge uh, across the board to mitigate the rise in hourly and uh, and and also I think it's time that we can really start looking at driving up the price of our entrees and our menu items and drinks. Uh, you know, I think what is going to happen is categorically restaurants will fall under fast food and they'll be expected to charge a certain amount for that and then premium. And there's going to emerge this new model, which I call fast fancy, which will be reliant on experience, uniqueness, menu, tastiness and a service model. And from that new operating model, we're going to be able to skew or re-edit or edit rather what we charge, which could offset the hourly. So those are just my immediate thoughts, higher livable wage, uh, new operating systems, operate, uh, operation models, and uh, charging a different uh, price for that and offsetting it with service charges. So uh, that's, that's my immediate thoughts with COVID and labor shortages. Um, my name is Nicole Ponseca. You can reach me at Nicole Ponseca on Instagram, N-I-C-O-L-E Ponseca, P-O-N-S-E-C-A. Uh, thank you for having me. I wish I was here earlier, and um, that's that's me. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Yes, it was good. You you put a bow in a lot of what we what we talked about, so appreciate that. And we'll make sure there's some really, really high-value stuff shared. Corey's capturing a lot of uh, resources for this, so when we share the... Uh, the link to the podcast episode definitely go over there because there's a couple of things for what you're talking about that i think would bring you value all right let's uh, wrap this up nicole mentioned go uh follow what's happening with uh jeepney down in miami uh on instagram kiki best place number one spot where we can connect with you hey there you can find me at um either instagram at rwcfusa or at my own website, www.kikiluya.com. Appreciate that. Uh, Teo, for you, what's the uh, best place to connect with you? Uh, so we are at uh, rocunited.org. TikTok, uh, roc underscore united. Um, and I would love it if you'd follow our TikTok. It's a great place to hear uh, workers voices um and then you can uh email me tao at rockunited.org tao as soon as we're done i am going to follow you on tiktok tiktok is absolutely the white space think of think of if you had gone all in on instagram in 2014 and taken that real estate up uh, without having to pay to play i'm so happy to hear that you all are there uh, mimi best place to connect with you Yes, uh, best place to connect with me is on Instagram at the Taste Curator or on my website at um, tastecurator.com. Abby, for you. Uh, best place to contact me would be Instagram. It's underscore underscore Abby Miller, E-Y, not A-B-B-Y. <laughs> Um, but again, just want to thank you guys for having me and listening to everyone was incredible because I, it's the first step for everything is, you know, to talk and get your voice out there. So thank you. Yes, we are in the relationship business. Communication is key. 
Uh, right now, I'm most excited to have everybody go to BesserPodcast.com and go check out the articles from the 86-86-86 challenge. Uh, we're paying writers $86. And when I say writers, anybody from the industry at any level in any facet. We've had people that are working on on school garden projects. We have people working on uh, in kitchens, behind bars. Not behind bars, that sound bad. Behind the stick as a bartender. Abby Miller has written an article and uh, we're shifting who gets to be a part of the culinary narrative and the value and worth that we're putting on somebody's story. We have a credible team of editors that bring those stories to life because we doubt that we are capable to tell our own stories so often. So I'm very excited about that shift in the way that we approach media. So please go check that out. And I'll just wrap with this as I, as I started this to kind of set the tone. Uh, you know, Angela Ahrens says, everybody talks about building a relationship with their customer. They need to build one with their employees first. That is it. We are in the employee investment business, the relationship business. That's what we need to do. Appreciate you all uh, for being a part of this. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this room. Definitely go check out the recording of this to get all the value and all those links on Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's it. Appreciate all the panelists. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.